Okay, uh, James chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. We're going to pray real quick. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your love and your goodness. We thank you for, Lord, your faithfulness to us. Um, despite all the things that, that we put you through, Lord, despite all of our shortcomings, you are always faithful. You are always consistent in our lives. And we thank you for that, Lord. We come and we ask you forgiveness of our sins, our transgressions. Lord, we pray that you'd bless this time here as we come and we just want to hear you speak. We want to hear your voice and give us direction for our lives, Lord. Um, exhort us, rebuke us, whatever it is that we need, Lord. We want to be open to that. And so we thank you. invite you here, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. Tonight, um, we'll be talking about partiality with the word. With the word means partiality with all. So as we've been going through James, um, you'll remember that the major theme of James is the idea of moving towards spiritual maturity. Um, you also remember that James is writing to a group of believers who are Jewish believers, who are part of the diaspora of, of spread out all over the place. And contextually in chapter 2, if you remember the first seven verses, he's talking about showing partiality to the rich, because that was an issue that was going on in some of the churches, where people were respecting others on account of what they had in their wallet. Um, he also talks in verses 8 through 9 about the law of love and how the law of love guards against partiality. And in the verses we're going to talk about today, he speaks about respecting the law of liberty and how that guards against partiality for us. So we, go, we come around from partiality that arises from a lack of love and a lack of respect for the Word of God to not respecting the Word of God in its entirety and how that leads us to demonstrating love, uh, not demonstrating love for people uh, the way that we should. And then as believers, he exhorts us here in this passage to live a life that's changed on account of the love that God has shown us. And so that as believers, we end up so that we deal mercifully with others on account of having been dealt uh, with mercifully by God. Let's read verse 10. It says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one, whole, in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so we'll be talking about four simple issues today. In verse 10, we'll be talking about the whole of the law condemns us. Okay. Secondly, in verse 11... The unity of the law comes from the Father. In verse 12, how the law of liberty is alive in us. And lastly, in verse 13, how the power of mercy it ends up with freedom from judgment. So first, in verse 10, the whole of the law condemns us. So as we take a look in verse 10, he's very clear saying that if anybody tries to keep the whole law, but they stumble at one point, they're guilty of the whole thing. And so he's really talking about... Um, a kind of a, a hypothetical, if you will. So think of it in this, in, in this way. James is kind of imagining a scenario of somebody who's completely faithful in all respects to the law of God. But they only have one oversight. He says, and that one thing is enough to make you completely guilty okay, of, of the law. And you've got to remember, he's speaking to Jewish believers. And so it's natural that he would go back to the law as an example of the importance, really, contextually, of the royal law, which he talks about here in verse 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you do well. And we know that comes from the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus echoes it as, as a summation of all of the works that we have to do in the law um, with respect to man. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you will fulfill the entire law. And so the simple idea that if you violate just one thing in the law, there's a forever mark against you as a transgressor. So it's not something that can go away. When you look at the Greek, um, this is written in the perfect tense when it says that he is guilty of all. And that's generally something that, um, done in the past, it has present consequences here. So, for instance, you know, one stumble makes one forever a lawbreaker. You're labeled as that. You know, if you have stolen something, you are a thief, right? It, you've done it in the past. That, that is what you are now. Okay. Those things, they, they do not go away. In fact, in Talmudic writing, they put it this way. That if a man uh, do all but omit one, he's guilty for all and each. Which is quite a high standard, you've got to say. I mean, that, that's about as tough as it gets. And so the difficulty then in keeping the law 
is that we're bound to keep it all. And of course, we know as believers that that's why we thank God that we have grace. Amen? Because now we have a way to bridge that gap that is just unbridgeable for us. We know that later on in the epistle, James writes in chapter 3, verse 2, that we all stumble in many things. And that's the truth of where we're at as believers. That we've all stumbled. And he wants to make them aware of that. Because he's speaking about favoritism. And really the idea that favoritism of any kind makes you a lawbreaker. Even if you don't, don't think it's that big of a deal. Because it doesn't matter. Because it's against what God has said. And so once you do that, it, it, you've already messed up. You can't say, well, it's, not, it's just a little thing. You know, if I'm capable of breaking one law, then the reality is that I'm capable of breaking all of them. You know? If, if, I'm, if I'm driving crazy down the road and speeding, then, I, you know, it's likely I'm going to do something else eventually because I just let things go. And as things go, things only get worse unless something stops it. And so we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to ask ourselves, do we really understand ourselves well enough, biblically speaking? As believers, are we honest with ourselves? So that we, we look at ourselves and we say, okay, you know what, this is who I am. Because that's why we come to Christ as believers, right? Because we know that we're sinners. Because we know we need grace. We know we're, we're so dependent on God's mercy. And so we come to Him asking for that forgiveness. We have to keep that in mind. Because if we remember that we are all guilty, and account of our sin, then, and that our hearts are deceitful, then the truth is that we're going to be less apt to do what he's talking about here in chapter 2 and showing partiality to another person. Because you're not going to start to rank people. Because you're going to start to realize, hey, we're all in the same boat. We're all messed up. You know, I wear these shoes and you wear those shoes, so, you know, I'm not going to hang out with you. Which sounds silly, but, you know, when we're working the high schoolers, that's the kind of stuff that they care about. I mean, this is, this is what they like. Hey, well, you know, you wear, I wear Vans. You know, you wear Nikes. You know, we don't, we don't hang out with each other. Those are basketball shoes. I'm having, I have some skate shoes on. And these are the things that, that we've all gone through. But stuff doesn't change when we become adults, really. We just slap different labels on there, don't we? And it's silly, no matter what the label is. Do you allow the truth of God's word to keep you humble? Because that's what's going to keep you grounded in your life. You know, remembering how, how we all fall short is going to help us to continue to be open to him as he ministers to us. It's going to help us to um, have that broken and contrite spirit that... David talks about in Psalm 51, 17, where he talks about that that's what God wants us to have. A broken heart, a contrite spirit before him, because then he can deal with us. Because we don't think that we have the answers. We don't think that we have things under control. And that's why God allows difficulty in our lives. Because he doesn't want us to be comfortable. Com comfort is the enemy of our spiritual maturity. In Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, you know, it's right at the end of Isaiah. God's talking about the judgment that awaits. And he takes a little, uh, an interesting detour here, right before he talks about his judgments, the beginning of Isaiah 66. It says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. That's me. I mean, he's the creator of absolutely everything. And he looks on the one who is broken, poor and of a contrite spirit, one who fears God and knows the gravity of his word. You know, how are we seeking to be justified in our lives? Is it on the basis of, of something that we've done that qualifies us for heaven? Or is it on the basis of the grace that we're all in dire need of? Because if it's through good works, it's not going to get us anywhere. We're, we're not any different than the Jehovah's Witness who goes door to door or the person who's, who's uh, LDS or any other belief system that tries to earn its way. Because just about every single belief system tries to do that. We need to rely on the grace of God. And so what James is really urging them to do here is he's urging them to a love-driven obedience. And notice what he's talking about here. He's talking about the ethical standards of the law. He mentions this here in verse 10. If you keep the whole law and yet stumble one point, you're guilty of all. When he's talking about the law here, in the New Testament, this word that's used generally refers to the Mosaic law. Um, but what James is doing here is he's using it to designate only the ethical portion of the Mosaic law. 
and that that ethical portion, the part that deals with the way that we live towards other people, is is something that comes up over and over again throughout the New Testament with all of the New Testament writers. So they point to that and say, will you look at that part of the way that you live with one another, the way you live here on, the, on this earth and treat people? It says, you make sure that you're doing that. Over and over again, they're referring to that in the New Testament. And, and this is important because that's the part that is the enduring part for us to keep as believers. We're not required to keep the ceremonial aspects of the law anymore. That's for the Jews. That's not for all of us. As Gentiles, as believers anymore. And and the Jews, you have to remember, they made no distinction between the moral, the ceremonial, the civil parts of the law. They felt that the whole thing should be kept with the exact same piety. But it's different for us as believers now. And so he's pointing to that part and saying, look, that that part that deals with the way that you live with each other, that's the part you need to make sure that you're keeping an eye on. Simply because you're a Christian doesn't mean the law has no value for you. It instructs us. We know that in Hebrews it talks about how it was a tutor for us, right? You know, these ethical standards um, contained in the Old Testament, they're valuable. They're instructive for us. And, and so we continue to study it. We, we don't ignore that. You know, that's why we go, uh, you know, book by book here, verse by verse. And we teach through things. Because we need to know the entire Word of God. And we'll be talking about the entirety of the Word in just a second. And so when we look at the Word, we shouldn't view it as, as a set of really. Because when we look at things instead of set of rules, we start to devalue them. Instead, we know that we obey, not because we have to, but because we love to. Because we love God. Because we love the people that he loves. And, and that's how James is approaching this here. That's why he started in verse 8 talking about, bless you, the law of love there. Okay. Now look in verse 11. He talks about the unity of the law. And the source of that unity is from the Father. In the very first part, he says, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. It's the same God. God is the originator of the entire law. We know what it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, right? That all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And the emphasis there is on that given by inspiration of God. It says all scripture includes Old Testament and New Testament. Same God that said, don't, don't cheat on your wife, said, hey, don't cheat on your taxes. Don't covet things, don't steal things, don't kill anybody. It's the same guy. In reality, he's telling him to respect, to respect just one portion of the law and not respect another. It makes no difference. It's still disrespect for God's will. It's a violation of it. You don't value it if you disobey. Because God is a source of all these. You have to remember what Jesus said, that our obedience to the word is really indicative of our love for him. In John 14, 15, he said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. It's about as simple as it gets. But it always, that, you know, that verse always cuts all of us. I mean, it just, it's the truth. We're like, oh. You know, we think we're getting, we're, we're doing all right. And we hit that and we're like, man, again, really? But thank God it's so plain for us. Because I, I think if it wasn't so plain, we, we'd find some way around it. And some of us still do try to find a way around it. We fool ourselves about this stuff. You know, it's kind of like this. I, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a school teacher. And, you know, one of the, the difficulties that I encounter every day is what I call students aren't students. And this is what I mean by this. So kids are existing and behaving in, or misbehaving in a classroom. And they're doing their thing. And a good chunk of them are not there to learn. Okay, some of you guys might have, might have been there at one point. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to teach them stuff. And I said, okay, well, if you want to get good at this, these are the things that you need to do to get good at it. But you see, because they're not students, they're like, well, I think I'm going to do that part and, and maybe that part. But this other stuff I'm not going to do. And then when they, when they see their report card, you know, they wake up because they're going to get a whooping or something when that report card gets home. They're like, what happened? They're like, I did that. I said, yeah, but you didn't do all of this. We do that with God sometimes. We're like, well, God, that, that part's cool. You know, I could, you know, I could pray. I could pray. I pray three times a day. You know, that, that's pretty good. You know, I, I read the Bible on Sundays, sometimes Tuesdays, you know, Thursdays. You know, we intentionally disobey the Lord sometimes in our lives. And do we really love to obey Him completely? Because that's where we need to be in terms of our attitude. That is the thing that we, we enjoy doing. 
It's like our own children. They're happier, really, when they're obedient to us, aren't they? They're not in trouble. They're not getting things taken away. They're not getting whoopings. You know, they might get a treat every now and then. But when they don't obey, they're not liking life very much. They're giving dirty looks and saying nasty things, sometimes under their breath. We shouldn't act like petulant children with the Lord. He says, if a man commits murder but doesn't commit adultery, it doesn't matter. He says he is a transgressor of the law. Literally a lawbreaker. So that the one rule that's broken means you, you've, you're guilty of the other one. Very similar to what he said up in verse 10. And so then, regardless, the main issue that he's saying is you've broken God's word, is what you've done. Interesting uh, quote. Somebody was saying, people, believers usually, free from fleshly sins, have often made their condemnation of fleshly sins an excuse for indulgence towards spiritual sins. And that's kind of true. We do that. Where, you know, well, I don't do that. You know, but I am guilty of pride over here. Do we find ways in our lives to spiritualize our shortcomings? Where we say, I didn't commit adultery, you know, but I killed somebody once. Well, you know, that was a long time ago. So, so that's okay. We find all kinds of ways to make our sin acceptable. You know, well, oh, well that was righteous anger, honey. You know, that, that's what that was. And, she, and your wife looks at you like, yeah, sure, you know. Next thing you know, there's a verse written on the, on the little notepad there on the refrigerator. You're like, oh, that kind of fits. Do we go, grow proud as believers in keeping the things that, that suit us best? Because we find these strange ways to feed our flesh, uh, even as believers. We have little notches that we put on our belt. We say, well, I've done this, I've done that. You know, I serve in this ministry and that one and the other one over there. And it puffs us up. We, we need to watch out that we're, we're judging ourselves even-handedly. You know, it doesn't matter if, if you keep one rule but neglect everything else as a believer. We have to be open to the whole thing. It's selective Christianity, really, right? And a lot of the church practices it. You know, a lot of people use this kind of rationale to um, talk about their, their liberty in Christ, Right? Uh, I'm able to do this because I'm free in, in Christ. And all they're really doing is using it to feed their flesh. So that they can go and engage in this activity or this other activity over here. And none of it really makes any sense. Eventually, it look no different than they did apart from Christ, really. And God forbid that that happens. Because the reality of things here in the book of James is that when you're partial with the word of God, it's invariably going to leave you, lead you to be partial with people, which is the effect of it. So it started with the word of God. That's why he comes back to this idea of the law of love, goes back to the law, because their commitment to the word of God just wasn't there. It wasn't real to them that the whole thing mattered. So that your commitment and my commitment to the word of God has a direct bearing on not just the way that I treat other people, but the way that I view everything in this world. So if I'm not completely committed to this, well, then I'll start to accept certain things that happen out there. You know? Oh, you know, you don't want to offend the, the, the homosexuals. You know? don't, don't tell them it's wrong. Now you, if you get an opportunity, you're talking to me, you tell them it's wrong. You tell them that Jesus loves them too. And that he has a plan for their lives and he wants to save them. Because you know that he saved you. you know? If somebody didn't tell us that we were wrong ever, where would we be? God. I think some of the kids in my classroom, that's where they are. It affects your entire outlook on the world, on others. You see, our blind spots, they're cured by, by a commitment to the entire word. The word uh, cleanses us, doesn't it? It washes us. It, it talks about that in Ephesians 5.26, that the church is washed by the word of God. Psalm 119, the whole thing is about the word of God, basically, right? Longest chapter in the whole Bible. In Psalm 119, verse 160, it says this. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. You know, do you study? Do you make sure that when you're reading, you go through the entire Bible consistently? You're like, uh, you know, you know, Proverbs was good enough for today. That covers the Old Testament for this month. I mean, we, we do stuff like that. 
And, and that's the reality. Hey, you're reading the Bible in a year? That's awesome. Okay? Make sure that you're mixing it up for yourself as a believer. That you're getting bits of each. That's why I like these like read the Bible in a year kind of schedules that some of you follow. That's why they're broken up like that. So you get some old, you get some new New Testament, you get some of the uh, books of poetry. And all together it becomes well-rounded. I once heard somebody counseling a young person about their reading. I asked him, hey, where are you reading? And the kid said, oh, well, you know, I've been reading Psalms. You know, and if you know young people, they tend to be a bit emotional. And the person in their wisdom said, hey, you be sure you're reading something that has some doctrine in it. You make sure you're getting fed some meat. Because otherwise, you're, you start to feed yourself fluff. And you start to go on some kind of an emotional roller coaster. We need to get into the entire word of God. We need to know it all. Because the reality is that we're accountable for the whole thing. Don't pick and choose what parts of Scripture are worth keeping. Because if you do that, you know, you kind of end up like the guy that Jesus was talking about who's telling somebody else, hey, you got that little speck in your eye. Well, you have a big old plank in your own. You start to neglect. You think it's okay. It's not that bad. You know, in committing to the Word of God, the result is that we, we see ourselves clearly. In the previous chapter here in James 1, Verse 21, James kind of talks about this idea and about the importance of the word showing us who we are. In James 1.21, he says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself goes away and immediately forgets what kind of a man he was. I mean, the, the positive is so clear in that first chunk of James 1, right? That we get to see who we are. And the Lord expects us to take action. He expects us to respond to that. You know, we need to be open to these kinds of things. We shouldn't be that person that doesn't do, that doesn't execute God's will in our lives. Because this is where James is, is leading them here. Because you have to execute it. That's what makes it real. That's what makes it tangible for people. I mean, you often hear people talk about how the only gospel some people will ever see is that which they see live down in your life. And there's truth to that, right? There really is. People watch us. They see what we're doing. And they start to make I, you know, their judgments about, well, what's Christianity really all about? Because if there's no difference... You know, I, I work with some people that are Christians... I'm not sure what kind of Christians they are. I pray for them. I pray for them. Because when I look at them, I'm thinking, man, is there any difference between them and, and anybody else that's working there? It, makes me, it gets me a little worried. Is there any difference between me and anybody else that's working there? I hope there is. And I hope it's not because of my flesh. I hope it's because of the Spirit of God that lives in me. I need to pray with those people, actually. You know, I've been meaning to get, get them all in a headlock and say, hey, we need to pray together, you know, once a week. God knows what kind of church they go to. I don't know. Pray for them, if you remember. Because you know? we need to be lights where we're at, right? We need to make sure people see that. Notice in verse 11 here, that the law of liberty needs to be alive in us as believers. He says, so... Um, I'm sorry, verse 12. He says, so speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Speak and do. This is a, actually a command here. Okay. It's, a, it's an imperative. He's saying you must do this. And it doesn't really come across well in English. But in the Greek, um, there's an emphasis on these actions here. So it's quite strong in the Greek. And in English it sounds like, hey, you know, uh, you know, pick up, pick up the napkin that you dropped. Where in the Greek he's saying, you must, it is of the utmost importance that you do this. And not just speak, but do. The two things together. And that you do this continually. Something that you don't stop to do as a believer. So that as we speak and as we live, and we live righteously, and we do this on account of being changed. Okay, and that's the key here. Because there should be no difference really between what we say and what we do as believers, right? 
They're the same thing. That's why they're paired together. You notice that throughout the New Testament, they're paired together, you know, in, our, in word and in deed. Okay? Because they're, they're, they should line up perfectly. Perfectly. If you're telling your kid not to lie, don't go turn around and start lying up a storm. It just doesn't work that way as a believer. We have to be clear in what we're doing. So that the believer's desire and ability to live righteously is not by compulsion, but it's because their very nature is, is changed. Now, when you look at, at verse 12, he's talking about this law of liberty. And law doesn't sound like, you know, you've been changed. It really sounds like something external, right? You're being forced to do something. We slow down when we see that the police officers have set up a speed trap up there. So, you know, we know not to break because then they'll see that. So we just ease off the gas and coast a little bit. And they're like, okay, I'm, I'm close enough to the speed limit. They won't get me anymore. All the young men are like, yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> but when he's talking about the law of liberty, the, the idea in liberty is this, is in that in the New Testament, it really means freedom from uh, being dominated by corrupt desires, being enslaved by those things that enslaved us previously. And so what happens is we, the things that we do now as believers is free of uh, of the, the flesh, but rather it's something that we will to do for the Lord. Now that we are free and able to do those things that please Him as believers. So we're given now the rule of right living and liberty, and, and we try to do it. And remember what it says in James one twenty five. You know, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, same idea, right? And continues in it. Is not forgetful here, but a doer of the work. It's the same idea he's talking about there in James one twenty five. That now we do this because we have been changed from the inside out. Okay. The Lord doesn't force us to. He says, if you love me, this is what you do. And he's like, yes, I love him. So we go do it. It just follows. It's logical. Okay. We don't serve God by compulsion anymore. You know, I remember when I was a kid, um, kind of grown up Catholic, and, and those things were boring. I mean, I remember that. I even went to Catholic school, you know. And uh, those masses were, were rough. I remember, especially when I was really small, you know, when you had to sit there and like kneel. Those of you who grow Catholic, you know what I'm talking about. You kneel in that pew, and you're like, there's got to be something for me to play with down here on the floor. Because it, it, it's boring as all heck. And, and you do it because like your parents are telling you, because you're supposed to put a nun staring at you. You've got to do this. Okay, you're scary. I'm going to do it. We shouldn't serve the Lord like that. Nobody forces us to, to show up here. Unless, you know, those of you kids, your parents, you're coming to church as long as you stay with us. Second Peter 1, 4 through 8, Peter puts it this way. He says, he's talking about uh, the Lord. He says, by which we've been, uh, has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And notice what he says there. You become partakers of the divine nature. That, that's, that's nuts. That the Holy Spirit resides inside of us. A part of God. I, I, that doesn't make any sense to me. I know it's true. I know what the Word teaches. But it's just incredible. I think if I was more aware of that, I'd be a totally different person. <laughs> but I forget it all the time. And it's neat because he starts Second, uh, Second Peter with this, that we've been giving these things uh, so that we may be partakers of the divine nature. We've escaped corruption. And then he goes on and says this. He says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, uh, I'm sorry, to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that element of commitment that happens as believers. Where we partake of that divine nature, but then we go, he says, now you go add this to your life. You go add this. You seek to do this. There's an initiative that we have to take. You know, God doesn't magically make us better. Now, so, with some things, God deals with us in such a gracious way where it's almost like this. I've known believers who are on, you know, hopped up on stuff before they were believers and then became believers and it's gone. No desire. Wild stuff. I don't understand how that works. It's gone. 
But that doesn't always happen. Okay. Sometimes we have to, you know, grind things out a little bit as believers. We have to show that we're going to be committed to Him because the reality is that in any love relationship, there's commitment that's involved. And it's true with the Lord. It's something that we renew daily. That's why we have to put to death the old man every single day. This is add to, to give all diligence to add to your faith virtue. And in the end, you do all of this. If you reach the apex of love, he says, these things are yours. You'll be neither bare nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll know him. You'll know him. Because you'll have sought him. He will have revealed himself to you. He will reveal himself in you. Which is a wild thing to think about. That someone can look at you and see the love of Christ manifest. Are you being transformed into the image of Christ daily? Is your transformation intentional? Or, or are you hoping for some kind of a magic pill? It's something that we really try to communicate to the, to the young people that we serve here. Is that you, you have to have a desire for the Lord. You go and you meet Him. The faith is your own, right? And we all understand as parents that we're saved, but it does not mean that our children are going to be saved. It doesn't mean they're going to walk. And just because they look like they're kind of okay here as their kids... Uh, two years from now, who knows? And so we pray and we teach and we, we try to be examples to them and we try to be as real with them as we possibly can about the Word of God. And say, this is what it is. But before we can do that, it has to be real for us. This is in stark contrast to the whole idea of, of compulsion, of being forced to serve God. Because when we view God's will for our lives, uh, like I said earlier, as a list of things, invariably when we have a list we start to prioritize it, don't we? Yeah, I don't make to-do lists often because I, I hate to see all the stuff I need to do. But every once in a while when I do it, immediately, no matter what order I, writ- I wrote it in, I start to pick the ones that I think are either A, most important, or B, the easiest for me to get done. Right? And you start doing those easy things. And we do that as believers if we start to think of our walk with God as a laundry list. Oh, I read today. You know, I prayed this much today. I did this today. You know, I didn't flip somebody off on the freeway today. Whatever it is, your list, you know, the stuff that God wants to do in our lives, it starts to lose significance. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5, 18, Jesus says this. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This principle is exactly why Jesus talks about this. Why he's so clear in saying, look at the whole thing matters. It's not going to go away. It's there. It's permanent. The word of the Lord endures forever. And that's a blessing for us. But for some people, they see it as a curse. And so it follows naturally that as Jesus talks about this, that he begins to talk about the hypocrisy that can ensue, bless you, in our lives as believers. When we start to say something and not do it, which is precisely what James is talking about here. As believers, we speak and we do. We live it out in our lives. Bless you. Because we're called to honestly demonstrate the word of God as believers. With no pretense. Because the reality is that we have the ability now to please God. We didn't before. And it's this privilege that we have. That you can come and serve Him and that He accepts it and He blesses us for it. He rewards us for this. I don't get that. I'm pretty happy just getting into heaven. But to think that I'm going to get some kind of a reward when I get there? In James 8.2, I'm sorry, Romans 8.2, there's no chapter 8 in James. In Romans 8.2, Paul says this. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His Son, His own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We are empowered 
by this Holy Spirit. One of the basics that we talk about when you know, we're going through the basic foundations of the faith. You know, Xavier just finished that not too long ago. But if we have this capacity, if it's God's purpose to fulfill this in us, then why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we using that? If you have enough money to pay for dinner, don't look at your friend so that he pays for it. And you pull out your wallet, slap that cash down, take care of it. I don't know why we try to keep things in reserve as believers. We've got to be spent. I mean, Paul talks about how he's being poured out a drink offering. Which is an amazing image. I mean, it's just, I mean, to put it in the base, most uh, basic of terms, it's just like that spilled milk, right? It's gone the second you drop it. can't do anything with that anymore. And that's the way he saw his life. And I always think about that. Like, Man, uh, uh, you know, I'm not poured out yet. You know, I need to be. Remember what he said there in James 2.8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, you do well. That's what we're trying to do as believers. That's how we make sure that we're saying and doing and that we're make sure, making sure that they're both the same. We're to keep that. We know that in Galatians 5, it tells us that the principal fruit of the Spirit is love. Right? That needs to be evident in our lives. Jesus says that they'll know us by our love one for another. And I mention that often to the kids. That I pray that when some kid comes and visits, that they see the love that we have for each other as believers. Anytime I get to teach you guys, that is always on display. And it's always so humbling to me. You know, you guys all come from various backgrounds and, and you have walked with the Lord for different amounts of time. But one thing that you all share in common is that love that you have for each other. And it's just so clear to me. And it's humbling to see that in a group of men. Because that's not something that is normal. It's not something that happens in this world. Men don't do that. I mean, family members maybe, maybe in some families. And other families like, hey, you know, call him a name or something. You know, how should we live our lives if our standard is, is that our words and acts are no longer forced, but they're willing? That we're freely submitting to live in love with our fellow man. With the church first and then with the rest of the world. We need to consider how living in the law of love is truly submitting oneself to all of God's law. Because it is an act of love to obey. If you love me, keep my commandments. But notice what he says here is he ends up with kind of one of the most difficult things. That you have to be merciful in verse 13. And that mercy is powerful because what it does is, is it gives them freedom from judgment as believers. He says, first, the idea that judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Which sounds scary at first, and it should sound scary. That judgment awaits someone who has shown no mercy, someone who is merciless. And so then, that at the judgment, the Lord will be merciless to those of us who have not been merciful to our fellow man. Now, we have to remember that as believers, we're not going to be judged in the way that the world's going to be judged. It's not going to be you're sent to hell. But it really is talking about it in terms of our rewards. Okay. And so that this incentive is something you miss out on. It's something that you cheat yourself out of as a believer when you neglect to live in mercy, when you neglect to be tender-hearted towards somebody, to act in goodwill. Especially towards the people who have difficulty in their lives, who are afflicted, who are miserable. Because those are the people that we're called to help. That's how we show ourselves merciful, from person to person. And we have this incentive. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I know I'm in need of mercy. I don't need to shortchange myself anymore. And we have to continue to remember that. That's why he starts out with that idea at the very beginning. That we're all lawbreakers. We all mess up. Let's be honest with who we are. And let's live and move forward from there. Because God expects each of us to show the mercy to one another that we've been shown by Him. You all know exactly how merciful God's been to in your life. 
So then we need to remember that as, as God is merciful above all else, that we follow His lead and His example. And that is such a high bar. It's, it's ridiculously high. And yet it's something that we strive to attain to every day. Not because we want to have another badge on our sash, but because we want to please the Lord. Because we love Him. Because we, we love the things that He loves. Ezekiel thirty three eleven. Lord speaking, He says, Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. He says, Turn. Turn from your evil ways. He says, For why should you die, O house of Israel? It's just such an amazing thing. God was so merciful continually to Israel, right? You know, you've done this, you've done that. You know, I was speaking to somebody the other day, and they were, they were sharing with me how, as they were speaking with someone else who had never read through the Word of God, okay, a, a Muslim, and as the person talked about it, they said, you know, the, the Word of God doesn't do the Jews any favors. It shows them warts and all. And yet God loves them. But God loves us too, huh? I mean, he's just so exceedingly merciful. He calls us to repentance all the time. We're not nearly as patient with other people as God is with us. And yet people never, never wrong us as much as we've wronged Him. Are we merciful to, to not just believers, but to sinners alike? Because sometimes it's kind of easy to be, uh, easier anyway, to be merciful to believers. Oh, well, that's a brother or sister in the Lord. You know, I could be merciful then. But then those the people out there in the world, we don't cut them much slack. It's not that you're cutting slack either, but it's that you understand where they're at. Okay? And you deal with that accordingly. And we're so quick to say, up, oh, out of here. And we forget that if, if nobody went out there and, and grabbed us, you know, we wouldn't be saved. Who knows where we'd all be. So we're not talking about being permissive here, but we're talking about demonstrating the love of God, especially for those people who have been ignored. I've been, you know, I'm kind of young, but I've been coming to church for a long time here. And weird people come to church. I mean, it's weird people. You look around like, man, it's kind of, it's crazy. We're all, we're all weird. And, you know, Paul talked about not many wise, you know, according to, the, to this world's judgments are called to him. And it's because God goes and he grabs us up out of the world and says, you, you, you come. And like we're the ones who are in such a state to respond to him. And we come to him. And he says, all right, I'm going to give you all of this. And then you turn around and you're like, really? Okay. And that's the way we have to deal with you. In Proverbs, it says this about mercy. In Proverbs 21, 13. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will cry himself. And not be heard. And you plug that in with any other person or group of people who are getting ignored. And that's, that's the person that you're supposed to go minister to. Those who are destitute. Those who are in difficulty. Those who are struggling. Those who are finally realizing that their sin is just crushing them. And, and they have no way of getting out. And those are the ones that we go and show mercy to. We go and say, hey you. You know, come on. You know, in my classroom, um, I kind of like trying to make connections with the kids that are kind of weird. You know, um, other kids don't pay attention to them. I'm pretty, I'm pretty fortunate where I work. The kids are fairly nice to each other. They, they don't really kind of bully much, and if they do, they don't do it around me. But you know, those kids are kind of different and ignored. As an adult, you go out and you extend yourself towards them, and they just respond. They open up. And, and, and they, they grow as, as a person. If that happens just from person to person in the world, how much more does that, is there an effect that happens on a, on a person and their lives and their soul as believers? We go and we pick out that person. We try to encourage the kids in the youth group. You know, you see a kid that's just kind of chilling on the side. Go talk to them. Befriend that person. Okay, hey, come on over here. Hang out with us. 
we, we need to be merciful to one another. Because the truth is that there's power in mercy. He says here that mercy triumphs over judgment in verse 13. That word triumph um, is an interesting word. It, in some places, it's translated to boast. Um, and it's really, to, uh, in this context, to exult. That mercy kind of shows and demonstrates, boasts, if you will, that it's superior to judgment. So that there's, it's full of confidence that there is now no fear of judgment because one has lived mercifully. So that the one who shows mercy had nothing to fear. You've been obedient. You know you've done rightly in God. Matthew 9.13, Jesus says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, so often as Jesus is talking to, to all the religious people, I mean, they just don't get it, because they think they have it all together. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Matthew 12, 7, he says something similar. He says, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And what do we do in our hearts to people? Because sometimes it doesn't make it out, right? There's all kinds of stuff that's happening in here and in here. But that it happens in there is really the root of the problem, isn't it? And when Jesus talks about committing adultery and murdering, what does he say? He says, if you hate your, your neighbor... You're guilty of murder. If you lust after a woman, you're guilty of adultery. So then what, does, uh, what does this mercy look like in our lives? Look in Matthew 18, verse 21. In this passage, uh, Jesus is given a... Uh, he's just finished giving a parable. And now gives a second one, a parable of the unforgiving servant. He says this. Peter was asking, So how often, Lord, shall, shall my brother, shall my brother who sins against me, and I forgive him? He says, up to seven times? How much should I be merciful? He says, well, because I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he'd begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore uh, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servants fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and came and told their master all that had been done. So then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry, and he delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So, my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother's trespasses. Forgiveness and mercy go hand in hand. We don't lord things over people. We don't remind people of things. Okay? Once it's done, it's done. Because we want that same grace extended to us. Jesus is emphasizing that need for forgiveness and mercy that's commensurate to His capacity for both of those things. And because they are endless, so should be with us as believers. That's what it looks like in our lives. Never ending forgiveness and mercy. Well, how is that possible? It's possible in Christ. It's possible in Christ. You know, Israel... Israel was often guilty of neglecting to love their neighbors, of neglecting mercy. They, they figured that true religion was made up of empty observances. And the Lord um, frequently rebuked them. You know, in Hosea 6.6, 6, He tells them that He required mercy and not sacrifice. In, in Micah 6.8, you know, He tells them, well, what does the Lord require of, of you? He says, to love mercy and to walk humbly for thy God, right? 
to love justice. These are the things that the Lord cares about. The same thing holds true for us as believers. Zechariah 7.9, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice, show mercy and compassion everyone to his brother. That's the command for us. That we show mercy and compassion. You know, what's the manifestation of the mercy that God's shown to us? But to show that mercy to, to anybody who's available. Don't be partial about it. Be free with it. Give. Some of you guys have the gift of giving. You give stuff. And that's cool, man. That's awesome. Do it. But you know, you can give more than stuff. Right? The same way that when Peter and John were walking in the temple and that lame man asked him, you know, for his money, he said, silver and gold I do not have. But in the name of Jesus Christ, Nazareth, rise up. And they, the guy jumped up. I'll give you something better than that. And that's something we can all give people. Because the reality is that too many of us who are churched, we're guilty of falling into the same sins of the Pharisees and the religious people of old. And that's what we have to guard against. That that would not be us. So that when people are saying that about us as believers, we can answer with honesty and say, you know that's not true in my life. And I'll be like, yeah. It's always amazing to me how bold people get on the internet. They think they can say things with impunity. I'm talking about adults, right? They'll say wild stuff about Christians. And then when you see that person next time, hey, you said that. Like, oh, what are you talking about? You know? And now they've got to defend themselves. And, and they know that you're not like what they're saying. That's a good thing if that's what happens, guys. If they shut up when you walk into the room, that's awesome. They, they should. The Word of God needs to be alive to us. And as it's alive to us, it's going to be transformative in each of us. And it's going to bear fruit in our lives. And that's what, what James is really trying to drive home to these believers. Is you go make sure you have a commitment to the Word of God. You see it. You don't divide it in the way that you see fit. But you, you take it all. You apply it in your life. And then it's going to, it's going to bless people. That walk in. So we're not going to have issues like this favoritism they talked about here in chapter 2. Father God, we thank you for your love, your goodness. Lord, we thank you that you're merciful and gracious to us. And we ask that you'd fill us and empower us, Father, to be able to live that out and show it to people. That as people encounter us, that they'd encounter you. We thank you for your goodness. And we ask that you continue to do a work here um, that, that is blessing to you and to us, that you build up the body. In Jesus' name, amen.